And open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. We've spent the last two weeks here, and we're going to conclude our series, our summer series, on looking at the Scriptures and asking, so what? As you know, we've been looking in detail at the attributes of the Bible. It's inspired, it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is authoritative. God has given us his illumination to understand it. And ultimately, this passage speaks of, as Dr. Strand taught us a few weeks ago, that it is ultimately sufficient. If it's sufficient, how do we apply it? We've looked at the, the, the bulk of this chapter to understand, so what? If the Bible is sufficient, if the God has given us everything that we need in, in Scripture, then how do I access that? We're directing our attention to verses 12 through 21. Let me just read that to set it in our minds. Peter says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present within you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent at that time, that at the time of my departure, or my death, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the mountain, the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I want to ask you a question, if you're a believer especially, to, to be honest about have you ever had a fleeting moment or a sustained season of doubt? I mean doubt about the truthfulness of Christianity. Maybe you've laid in your bed or been driving in your car or had an honest moment on a walk when you wondered if what you believe is true, if it's really right. I think if we were all honest, we would say, yes, I have had either fleeting moments or seasons of sustained doubt. And that's okay. God knew and God expected that. And the reason, as we said last week, is we're called to walk or to live by faith in what we don't see, knowing that one day our faith will be translated into sight when we behold the Lord Jesus 
face to face in heaven. Maybe there's no better place to illustrate this than in the life of the greatest man who ever lived except for Jesus. And the reason we know he was the greatest man who was ever alive, ever lived, besides Jesus, is Jesus said he was the greatest man who had ever lived, and that's John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, he's been imprisoned, he's facing imminent death, and he sends word to Jesus to make sure he is the Messiah. John is Jesus' cousin. He grew up with Jesus. If anyone had affirmation of the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth, it would have been John the Baptist, his cousin. And yet, in the last days of his existence, he sends word and says, you are, you are the one, aren't you? And instead of slamming John as a doubter, Jesus says, no greater man has lived. Was he giving John an excuse for his doubts? No. He was giving us an understanding that he understands our doubts. If John the Baptist could ask the hardest questions, so can we. And the good news is that there are answers. Think about this. We have more revelation than did John the Baptist. We have a closed canon, a completed book. The answers that we need, the answers that we long for are found in the Bible. Peter's central message in these pages of this short little epistle is that if we're going to be able to endure persecution and endure hardship, endure difficulty, struggle, we have to have a foundation. We have to have a basis. And the basis is the reality of Christ, which can only be discovered in the words of Scripture. Peter's readers needed assurance that they were going to endure this persecution that was fast upon them. Nero was pressing down and arresting Christians. If they were going to endure this persecution, if they were going to make it out with their faith, even if they didn't make it out of the persecution alive, they were going to need to know that their faith was plausible, that it was believable. Can I just give you some good news? It's okay to ask hard questions of God and hard questions of the Bible. It is not a fragile book. It can sustain any question we would ask it. And God anticipates that we would ask the hardest questions about life because he's provided the answers to those questions. Peter's readers needed assurance they needed their doubts solved. And if they were going to endure this persecution for their faith, they needed to make sure it was believable, it was plausible, it was clear enough. Now, for the past two weeks, we've been on a guided tour of the promise of God by Peter. It's an amazing promise that has comprehensive depth and comprehensive breadth and comprehensive application. Look carefully with me again at verses 10 and 11. Peter says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, take every effort to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things. And here's the central idea. You will never stumble. Last week, we studied that there's lots of passages about stumbling in God's word, and that leads to ultimately falling if you don't catch your balance on your way down from a stumble. 
Peter understands that to walk in life, we need to have assurance. We need to have plausibility. We need to be equipped, have the ability to self-supply, self-resupply ourselves from God's word with truth so we do not stumble. The promise is for a sure-footed walk with the Savior. That's kind of been our theme over the last three weeks. The metaphor is keeping your feet spiritually. We, we say it like this. Let's get our act together. This is the passage that realigns our purpose for that. Now, remember, the primary means of transportation in the time of the New Testament was walking. And that became a metaphor not only for navigating the physical world, but a metaphor for navigating the spiritual as well. And so the heart of what Peter is saying is, I want you to know how to walk in a way with Christ so that you won't stumble and ultimately trip and fall. The first four verses, Peter describes the provisions we need to keep from stumbling. We've looked at that briefly. We, we also looked at verses 5 through 11 last week where he provides the practices for a sure-footed walk. And here we find the plausibility. How can we be sure how can we be sure that what we believe is right? If the Bible says it's sufficient, it's okay to say, how do I know that? Because Peter provides us a very clear answer. It shouldn't surprise us since it was Peter who wrote, 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, an apologetic to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That's your testimony of faith. It's to be able to defend the faith to others because the confidence comes from our own confidence in our belief, our worldview our biblical understanding and frame of understanding life, our theology. So do you have a plausible faith? A faith that is so believable it causes you to live differently than you would without Christ. How can you really know? How can you walk by faith? Well, let's look at this passage and we're gonna look at a very high level. We're gonna go fast because it needs to be pulled together in one unit. We're gonna look at three anchors for the plausibility of our faith. Three anchors for the plausibility of our faith. The first is in verses 12 to 15, the instruction of the apostles. The instruction of the apostles. Verse 12, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Can I just please tell you, as a preacher, that's one of my favorite verses. It is a blessing when people say, I've heard you say that before, Rick. You're right, and I'll probably say it again. Peter had this repetitive uh, uh, syndrome as well. I'm reminding you, I've told you, I need to remind you again. And, and if you'll have grace with me, sometimes I'm not reminding you as much as I'm reminding me. When you're working verse by verse through the scriptures, you will constantly cycle through the same truth over and over again. And it's like driving by a beautiful vista and not being able to catch it all. And so you take a loop around and you drive past again. The Holy Spirit has purposefully inspired the progression of revelation so that we would cycle through truth regularly. That way we'll be reminded 
He even says, I know you already know what I'm going to remind you, but I'm going to remind you anyway. And having been established in the truth which is present with you. Do you see what he's saying? I know you know what you know, but I'm going to remind you what you know so you'll know it better. That's what he's saying. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling. Now, Peter becomes personal in his testimony. 30 years previously, Jesus had told him, you're going to go where you don't want to go. You're going to die in a way that you don't want to die. He alerts his readers, he's about to leave this earthly dwelling. Isn't it interesting how he views life? This temporary shelter that I'm living in called my body. I'm going to leave this earthly dwelling. He's not being Neoplatonist where he's making a clear distinction between the spirit and the body. But he is saying this is going to decay and go away. And I am going to be, the real me is going to be with Christ where my faith will indeed become sight. An obvious and impending death has a way of orienting personal priorities. You know, when a person knows that they're about to die, things come into very sharp focus. Peter was no exception. And for most, the impending idea of death would bring a preoccupation with ourself. Peter's preoccupation is with the establishment of his readers. He doesn't talk too much about his personal struggle with the fact that God has told him, you're almost done. It's almost time to come home. He focuses on them, on the believers. I love verse 13. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up. And he says it for the fourth time by way of reminder Now, let's think about this logically. Why would Peter keep saying, I'm going to remind you of what you already know unless he knew we would all have a tendency to what? Forget. Three times in these verses, he writes about reminders or remembering spiritual truth. And remember, John 21, verses 18 and 19 is when Jesus says, you are going to die a death, you're gonna be bound in a way that you don't wanna go. And we know from tradition he was crucified and wanting to honor Christ and say, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord and Savior. Tradition tells us he asked to be crucified upside down. Peter's writing with urgency. His purpose is as long as I'm alive, I am going to remind and instruct you. I'm gonna ask you, please remember what you know. Stir you up. It's a colloquial way of saying, I'm going to wake you up from sleep. Verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is at hand. It's imminent. I'm about to die. I know it. How do you know that, Peter? How did he know he was about to die? Look at verse 14. The Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? For Peter, that meant, hey, you're going to die soon. Verse 15, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, he talks about his death as a departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. 
There's an urgency. Next week, I'm taking my son Mark away. We're going to go on an overnighter because he's going away to college. I can't believe you're leaving us. Why? It's so nice at our house and in Kansas City. And like his other brothers, we're going to go away for a night, and I have a whole list of things that I feel like I need to get in because I'm not done with him yet. <laughs> I'm convinced that almost everything we're going to talk about, he's heard before. But I know the urgency in every slight way where Peter says, I, we're going to be separated. I just want you to remember what's important. The instruction of the apostles extends beyond what Peter said to the entire, I think, New Testament that we need to know and be reminded of and be theologically attuned to and trained by in our worldview. That's the first anchor. The second is the verification of the Savior. This is verses 16 to 18, the verification of the Savior. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this cleverly devised tales? We think of this as maybe nursery rhymes. This is not nursery rhymes. This is exactly where our culture lives. The idea of a crucified and resurrected Savior was asinine to them. Unbelievable, far-fetched. It sounds like a cleverly devised tale. I think Peter, when he says, we did not follow those, he's giving us a hint at what the culture was saying about Christianity at the time. I mean, they, they have a crazy idea that this guy was crucified in Jerusalem. He was buried. <laughs> and they think he rose from the dead. He says, no, we didn't follow a cleverly devised tale when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important. But we were eyewitnesses of his glory or his majesty. Now, you could easily look at that and say, well, they lived three plus years with Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to his glory and to his majesty. And, and you would be right. But that's not what he's talking about here. He has a specific incident in mind. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, when did that happen? Such an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory. We're going to come back to that. This majestic glory says of Jesus in some context, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. By the way, whatever he's talking about his friend John said in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When did this happen? Well, we find out in verse 18, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 17. 
Matthew 17. This is a significant scene in the life of our Lord and a most significant scene with the lives of three of his disciples. You remember they're in Caesarea Philippi, which is just north of Galilee. They are having discussions about Jesus, his true identity. That's when Peter makes his, his great formulation of, of the identity of Christ. You're the, the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, you're right, God revealed this to you. And then, then Peter tries to talk him out of the cross. And he says, well, that's a satanic plan. And after that, that, that confession, verse one of chapter 17, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. I've been in this area where we think that this is the likely high area just north of, of Caesarea. It's a big giant ridge, very isolated on top, very hard to get to, very hard to climb up. And it was a place chosen by the Lord so that they could be isolated. Now, verse two is a very difficult sentence to translate from Greek into English. I'm gonna do my best. And he was transfigured before them. A way to understand this is it's like he peeled his flesh back and showed them who he really is. Everything changed. This visual of Jesus is completely beyond, beyond any kind of animated, uh, uh, computer-generated idea you can think of. Look at what it says. He was transfigured, and his face, it, it, it shone. It was bright like the sun, and, and his, his garments, they, they became as white as light. One of the most precious colors, especially in clothing, in the ancient Near East was white. There was no bleach. And when something was white and it didn't, and it was soiled, it never became white like that again. This was white. And can you imagine looking at a person you've known for two and a half years and you look at them and their face is like looking into the sun When we see the words, and behold, in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, behold is a colloquial way of saying, guess what? And guess what? Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now, I, I just have used my, my sanctified imagination a bit about this scene. And so Peter, James, and John are there. Jesus is transfigured. He becomes bright. And then Moses and Elijah are there and they're overhearing them talk. My first question is, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I don't know if they had name tags. Or it, Jesus must have either introduced them or addressed them. Because I'm pretty sure neither of these three men had ever met Moses or Elijah before. We're not told Peter's response, though, is interesting. Verse four, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, Lord. 
Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you desire, if you wish, tell you what, I will make for us three tabernacles, three sacred tents where, where they would have the, the feast of tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We can make this permanent. Well, while I love this, the way the Holy Spirit says this, while he was still speaking, or you could almost say ignoring what Peter was saying, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And guess what? Behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Don't miss verse six. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down. Literally, they fell onto their face down to the ground and they were terrified. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, the idea of the original is they were kind of peeking, like lifting up their eyes slowly, they weren't afraid of Moses and Elijah. They were afraid of that cloud. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus alone. Take that thought and now go back to 2 Peter chapter 1. So when Peter says, we heard, verse 18, this utterance made from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain, what did they hear? Verse 17 tells us, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We know exactly what incident Peter was discussing, right? He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, let's just be participants in this scene for a minute. Can you imagine a can I be vernacular here? A cooler thing to see in your life? A more amazing thing to see? That you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then he goes up on the mountain six days later and he peels back his flesh and you see that he is God glorified. By the way, those same phrases, his face shone like the sun, is the exact phrase that John uses when he saw him on Patmos in Revelation chapter one. He saw the glory. Can you imagine anything better? Can you imagine bragging rights? I saw the greatest sunset. Yeah, I saw Jesus like the sun. I met this really cool guy. I saw God in the flesh. That experience would have been overwhelming. But that leads us to our third anchor for the plausibility of our faith. And I think what you're gonna discover, Peter says, is nothing short of shocking. Number three, the light of the scriptures. The instruction of the apostles, the verification of the Savior. They saw who he was, who he really is. And thirdly, the light of the scriptures, verse 19. So we have the prophetic. You can insert written. We have the prophetic word 
made more sure? Who in their right mind compares the experience of seeing, seeing God in the flesh shining like the sun, hearing God speak from the cloud, the Father. Who compares that experience to the prophetic word, the written word, can we say the scriptures, and says this, the scriptures are more sure than that experience I had on the mountain. Do you see what he's saying? This is incredible. This is important because you and I, we long for experience. We long for intuition. We long for this thing we can feel and touch and see. Notice the prophetic word is more sure than any experience. Really? Then why do we internally feel such a need over and over, day after day, month after month, year after year, to try to feel more than we do? And listen, God can certainly communicate to our feelings. We sang his robes for mine earlier. My feelings and my affections, as Edward says, were stirred. It's good. He has given us feelings. And sometimes he touches them, but he doesn't intend for us to walk by feelings or by sight. We walk by what we believe and our faith. And he says this, Peter says, I trust the prophetic word more than I do my own experience of seeing the glorified Christ on the mountain. Just let that sink in. There's an entire theological understanding of our bibliology in that simple phrase. Second, notice what he says. You would do well to pay attention to it. We have the prophetic word made more sure, more solid, more trustworthy than experience. And then he says, to which you would do well to pay attention This is Peter saying, you really ought to pay attention to what God has written in his word. So Peter is giving us the Read Your Bible More sermon today. Pay attention to it. Listen, do you you pay attention to the Bible? Do you take Peter's admonition here? Do you devote attention to to the study of God's revealed, precious, written word. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you would say what every smart person says, why should I, why would I do this? It's in the last phrase. You would do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. It's the light you're looking for. It's the light you need for your darkness. Boy, darkness is such a vivid concept. Darkness is such a vivid concept. It's terrifying. I remember when I was in high school, I went spelunking. I didn't even know what that word meant until I went. And we went way back in Ruby, underneath Ruby Falls in Chattanooga, Tennessee, spelunking back into a private area. And we went several miles back into this cave and don't think I wasn't thinking about that with this, this uh, situation we had with those young men in Thailand a few weeks ago. 
And we got way back in there and our guide, we got to this one part and he says, okay, everybody sit down. There was a kind of an area and he says, okay, turn off your headlamps. And we did. And it was not just dark. There was no light. And it was terrifying. Terrifying. People are afraid of things that go bump in the day? No. In the night, we're afraid of the dark. It's, a, it's an image. It also can indicate a lack of direction. It can indicate a lack of certainty. He says, this is a lamp shining in a dark place. What that's talking about is God's word and our world. It's a lamp that shines in a dark place, which is our world, it's our lives, it's our existence, it's our experience. All of us have dark times. Sometimes they're dark moments and sometimes they're dark hours and sometimes they're dark days and sometimes they're dark seasons and sometimes they're dark lives. Peter is telling us something important here. Scripture is the light that dispels our darkness. Imagine that you're coming home after free baseball. Free baseball is what we call extra innings. You went to the six o'clock game down at the K at Royal Stadium. You had your fill with nine innings. They were tied. You went 11, 12. You went 13 innings. It's deep in the night. It's, it's midnight. It's approaching one o'clock. You come home. You have to park your car out on the street and you get out to come in. And as you're locking your car, you drop your keys. It's pitch black. So you're faced with a choice. I need to find my keys. Now, how much sense would it make for you to say, I've got an idea. I'm gonna go inside, turn on the lights, and look for the keys in my living room. There's a problem, right? That's not where the keys are. But that's where light is. You can see clearly there. I am convinced that the world shines lights on parts of our existence and parts of our life to make us look in the wrong places for the right thing. God can turn on the lights of our heart. Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 139, verses 11 and 12. In fact, would you just look at Psalm 139 for a moment? I know you know this passage well, but I want you to see it maybe from a different perspective than you're used to considering. Psalm 139 is that great text of the omnipresence and the omniscience of God. And he asks the question, does uh, David in verse seven, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Which gives us the idea that maybe you wanted to flee from his presence. And it's certainly true if there's sin, but it's also true if we just have dark times. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you know what? You're there. If I make my bed and shield, if I die, Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, if I go as far away as I can see, if I go in the deepest part of the ocean, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will take hold of me. Verse 11. And boy, this is so encouraging. If you are in a dark place in your life right now, if I say, surely the darkness, 
It will overwhelm me. That word for overwhelm means it will hurt me. It will chase me. It will bruise me. Surely the darkness will be my demise. And the light around me will be night. I'll be consumed by darkness. I love this, verse, 10, verse 12. Even the darkness, it's not dark to you. And the night, huh, it's as bright as day. Verse 12 at the end. Darkness and light are alike to you. I know we think of that in terms of being exposed with our sin, and that's true. But you can also think of this in terms of difficulty and dark times and moments of doubt. If we become faithless, Paul told Timothy, he remains what? Faithful. Note that the focus here is light. Look at the next phrase, back to 2 Peter. Verse 19, until the day dawns. What happens when day dawns? Light comes. And the morning star arises in your heart. What happens when the morning star arises? At night when there's no clouds and no light pollution, the morning star or the, the, the moon comes out and it gives you ability to see at night. And then he goes in verse 22, uh, an idea that has been so uh, misinterpreted, I think, over the years, but it's encouraging to see in this context. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy, now we know he's not just talking about prophecies made verbally, prophecy of what? Scripture is a matter of one's own loosing or interpretation this is not so much about private interpretation. I know we say, look, it's not for your own interpretation. And that, that's, that's got some, some relevance and some application. We can't just apply it differently and interpret differently. There's only one authorial intent. He's not so much talking about private interpretation as he is original interpretation. The one who wrote the scriptures, the ones who wrote the texts. In other words, what they wrote was not from themselves. It was from God. They didn't make this up. How do we know that? Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit when they wrote, when they spoke, when they wrote down the scriptures from what they spoke, they spoke from God. No one no one in our generation, no one except James and John could have ever traded or compared experiences with Peter. No one. And he says the holy scriptures are better than that experience of seeing the divine majesty speak to the son and affirm his identity. Say, well, how can I get that? This is the complete circle. Go back to verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has given, granted to us everything pertaining to life 
eternal life, godliness, navigating this world with a godly perspective and a godly obedience through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And if you apply these things, verse 8, you won't be fruitless in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It all goes back to the knowledge of God in Christ. Listen, folks, please listen. Theology matters. And theology is not a matter of conjecture. It's a matter of reflecting on what God has said in his book. It's the knowledge of who God is. It's the knowledge of what God's like. It's the knowledge of what God has done. It's the knowledge of what God is doing. It's the knowledge of what God has promised he will do and will finish. Those things matter. You know why? Because they change our perspective. They change our perspective. Verse 3 says, he's given us everything, all things. Absolute sufficiency. There is nothing this world can offer that can trump the treasures of perspective that come from theological insight gained from reflecting on what we read in the scriptures about the knowledge of God and ultimately his son, the Lord Jesus. Think about this. If, and I'm saying this if, really meaning since, if God is good, if God is all-knowing, if God is in control, if God loves me, if God is for me and not against me, then my interpretation of dark doesn't reflect his interpretation of light. Oh, we have dark times. We have deep doubts. We have horrific trials. And I'm convinced the longer I live and the older I get that God provides, listen to that, God provides as if it was a kindness, and it is. God provides me trials that continually loosen my grip on this world, on this planet, and make me long for a day when there will be no darkness. That's grace. Perspective changes everything. And perspective is gleaned from the word of God, which makes you a better theologian. Let me say it again. You are all theologians. You're either a good one or a bad one or a developing one. Perspective might be your most powerful tool for navigating this world. Your perspective is going to either be informed by the darkness of this world or from the light of Scripture. You know, we had this series on the treasures and the attributes and the characteristics of God's Word. But if it doesn't cause us to read it and study it and to see that it's for us and not find application for 13 other people when we're reading, 
then all of this has been knowledge that puffs up and we are like a symbol that splashes and crashes and is nothing but annoying. Sometimes feel a twinge of guilt, a twinge of perspective when I, I read church history and I, I think of um, Tyndale or Coverdale, Luther, men who suffered greatly, some men who died because of their commitment to this book. And I think of the countless generations who have lived only with limited access to a Bible. And we have access, this unmitigated, we live in a world, in a, in a country where it's, we're free to do this. Do we take advantage of this gift? And can I frighten you just a little bit? Those to whom much is given, much is, say it with me, required. I think Peter intends for us in this whole first chapter, which functions tightly together as an argument, to see that no experience can compare to the truthfulness, the solidarity, the, the light, the resource we have of the knowledge of God presented to us in the scriptures. There's nothing in this world that can compare. Nothing. So what's the takeaway? Right at the very beginning, he says that the knowledge of God is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought long and hard about what I'm about to say this morning, right now, and was almost too afraid to say it, but I think it needs to be said. If you have no hunger for God's word, if you have no desire to know God in his word and no magnetism toward his son, the Lord Jesus, if God's word can sit for days and weeks and months without us doing what Peter says, pay attention to it, there's a very real likelihood that you're not a Christian. There's a very real likelihood that some will get all the way to the judgment deceived in their own hearts and saying, Lord, Lord, look at what we did. And he'll say, I never knew you. How do you know him? You know him by coming to him through his word. It all begins with knowing Christ, that he's the payment for our sinful, wretched lives for which we deserve hell. And he died instead of us and for us. And he rose from the dead and offers us perspective in life and, and hope for the, when, the, when the lights go out permanently 
and we close our eyes for the last time. God's word is determinative. What you do with his word determines your eternity.